I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast, where I victimize my guests with some dangerous interviews and even more dangerous scenarios. Today, we've got a guy that uh, has been around the block a couple of times, Navy SEAL, uh, high-performance driver. I want to know how the hell I get one of those kinds of jobs. And then on top of that, he's also an actor and entrepreneur. So this guy's just racking up quite the resume and uh, is obviously an overachiever. So uh, the producers put together a target package. Let's see what we've got. Oh, these are always dangerous because you never know what they find on the internet about these guys. And I think that's the best part of the show. So uh, let's see here. Jeff Reeves, high-performance driver, Brand rep for Aston Martin North America, former Navy SEAL, actor, entrepreneur. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah, how's it going? It's going well. It's going well. It's good to be uh, good to be on your podcast. This is fantastic. I love your books, so I've got uh, two of them. Yeah, kind of awesome. They're cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on board and uh, t- risking your, um, you know, audiovisual life here for the hour that we're together. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, congratulations on getting the show, by the way. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, this is uh, new territory for me, but um, I think it's it's fun, and uh, the best part is uh, there's a team of guys that really do all the hard work. All I got to do is show up to the microphone, so I can't you can't beat that. So the uh, the producers pull up some good stuff on you. It says here, uh, born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. Jeff attended uh, Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio, graduating with a degree in business pre-law. Pre-law, huh? So you would you give up on the attorney thing? Um, yeah, actually. So when I was in college, I actually changed my major every year that I was in college. It first was um, uh, I wanted to make the dinosaurs run across the screen. And I thought that was computer science. And very quickly, I realized that is not how you make dinosaurs run across the screen. Then I went to computer art to actually do that. And then uh, I actually did criminal justice my junior year. And when I went and actually taught some uh, Harbor Patrol police in Cleveland, Ohio, how to scuba dive, the guys were like, why are you doing that? I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe I want to become a you know, law enforcement someday. They're like, no, go do something else, then come back. To yeah. if you want to be cop, we'll teach you everything you need to know in cop school, and now you're dual marketable. And I thought well, that's a really smart idea. So I then went back to school my senior year, changed my major all again, and I was like, you know, if I ever get into trouble, I want to know how to get out of it. And so then that's where the law aspect came up. So yeah, I ended up uh, graduating the business uh, business pre law degree. Nice. Well, that's a lot of back and forth, and I was kind of wishy washy myself back in the day. Um, but ultimately I was like, fuck this. I'm joining the Navy. Cause I had to go and, uh, scratch that itch that had been bugging me since I was like 10 years old. So when did it begin for you that, Hey, I want to, I want to do this seal thing. When I was 12 years old, actually. So when I was 12, um, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, my 
my dad, my brother, we always went to the Cleveland Air Show. Phenomenal air show. You know, every other year, the the jet teams of the Blue Angels or the uh, Air Force Thunderbirds showed up with then the Golden Knights and all that neat stuff. And um, I remember that, you know, those big carnival tents that they have any and everything underneath the sun that you can buy to fill your house with tchotchke type stuff. And my brother went to go buy something and I went with him and we're walking in and he's standing in front of this table ready to buy something. I happen to look up and in the rafters, I see those like the flags, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. And then I saw a Green Beret and U.S. Navy SEALs. And I had never heard of U.S. Navy SEALs. And I was like, man, that, that sounds cool. And so yeah. I'm, I looked at him like, hey, I'll be right back. And I went over, I threw down 10 bucks, I think it was. And I came back with my brother to, back to where my dad was sitting. And I'm like, hey, dad, look what I got. He goes, what is it? And I'm like, I don't know. He goes, well, you better find out. <laughs> so uh, I had this flag, it says U.S. Navy SEALs. I walked, remember, uh, I walked all the way, it was like two miles walking to the nearest mall where Walden's Books was back in the day. And I mm. went up like military section and they went history. And so I walked over to the history section and the first book I saw that said SEALs on it, I grabbed, which I actually still have. And uh, I hated reading growing up. I, I, I just, my eye, I don't know if it's because my, my eyes got tired or whatever. I read that book cover to cover in two days and I was in, I was yeah. asking, this sounds like the greatest job in the world. And that was it. So birthday lists, Christmas lists all became gear lists. And, um, <laughs> I'm not joke that if I entered, all I had to do was just issue me a weapon because I had literally everything else, you know, what I thought that the seals had, but that was also back in the day when you had to earn the information for the seals. I mean, you had to read popular mechanics magazines. You had to I remember there was like a hell week thing in like a, in a newsweek magazine yeah. never heard about seals then and that's what i liked about it that you didn't know who these dudes were and then well that's changed in recent years yeah yeah no no kidding now you can just uh pull up any device and get plenty of information because of dirty rotten traders like me who's written books but, uh... <laughs> well, man, that's what i wanted to that's what i wanted to do yeah, no, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, we kind of have a similar, I was, I was that young as well. I was 10 years old. I've told this story a couple of times. I'll give you the cliff notes version. Cause it's pretty funny is I was in, uh, I grew up overseas. And so I was stopping through, uh, Frankfurt airport and we were at our gate. I was with my family. I was 10 years old and I went to the closest little restaurant slash bar to get like a Coke. Right. And at the bar is this guy, he's got, uh, you know, he's got the beard, he's got a ponytail, he's got a black polo on, and he's got all these tats. And one of the tats will look like a trident. And so I asked him about it. I'm like, what is that? And he's like, it's a trident. And I'm like, well, what's a trident? And he's like, it's a symbol that represents the unit I work for. And I'm like, ooh, so what unit do you work for? And he's like, hey, kid, what? where are you from? What are you, why are you asking me all these questions? I'm like, I'm just, I don't know. I just thought I'd ask. I don't know. It's kind of cool looking. And he's like, where do you live? I'm like, I'm living Saudi. And he's like, Saudi Arabia. I'm like, yeah. He's like, what are you doing there? So well, my dad worked for an oil company. Huh? All right. Do you, do you remember when we bombed Libya? And I'm like, yeah. Cause at the time vice president George Bush came and I was a boy scout. So I was his color guard. And, uh, he came and gave like an announcement that was like, Hey, you know, if Libya responds to anything that we potentially do in the future, we'll have, you know, some C one thirties to get the Americans because Saudi Arabia is the closest target where he could, you know, kill Americans. And so anyway, this guy is like, well, in order for those B one eleven bombers to get in nice and low and hit their targets, 
me and my buddies had to go take out the anti-aircraft guns. And uh, I was like, Ooh, what does that mean? What'd you do? And he's like, well, you go in at night and you shoot all these guys in the face. And then we blow up the gun. And I was like, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And I, and I've said it a hundred times, like all the way up until that point in my life, I wanted to be a ninja. But when I found out that being a ninja, if you kill somebody as a ninja, it's called murder. But if you kill somebody as a Navy SEAL, now that's heroic. <laughs> so at that point, you know, I was like, I'm totally sold. And I did the same thing. And I was in Saudi, so they didn't have crap for research, you know, hitting the card catalog, looking for uh, any kind of book that had SEAL in it. But uh, yeah, starting at a young age, and then that passion obviously was lit on fire for you. Um, you joined the military, you know, you want to be a SEAL. So kind of how, what was your path? What were your stepping stones getting there? So I actually had an enlisted contract. I was supposed to be a sonar tech. So I was supposed to go to San Diego, go to the whole submarine base out there or learn, learn the sonar tech stuff out there. And, uh, this is after while I was in college. And at the time I just wanted to be a SEAL. I mean, the backbone was the enlisted and that was the best way that I knew that I could uh, get in. And then I happened to be walking across campus and I was also on the university swim team at the time. I swam for Bowling Green for four years. And, um, one of my teammates was like, Hey, did you go up to, did you see the, uh, the Navy recruiter at the top of the union? I'm like, no, I didn't know there was something going like a job fair going on. And I had 45 minutes. So I thought, okay. So I went up and, uh, to this area and I was, I was absolutely that guy. I'm like, Hey, how's it going? Oh yeah. Acting all cocky. Like I was already going in. And I'm like, I got a, a SEAL contract to the late entry program. He's like, wait a minute, you're graduating, right? I said, yeah. It's like, so why aren't you going in as an officer? Uh, nobody's talked to me about that. Well, in short, like all my, tra- all my paperwork transferred over, ended up getting in the officer side of the house and then ended up going into the military that way. I think there was out of the year, uh, out of the zero two zero one year, um, or the zero one year, I guess, because I was a second class in OCS in the 2001. Um, there was 250 applicants and 18 of us got selected. And I honestly do not know how my packet ended up in the, the one of the 18, but somehow it did. And uh, so I went to OCS, Pensacola, Florida, did all that. Uh, now that I was in the Navy, I had to go work for the Navy. So I couldn't just go back home and hang out until my buds class showed up, until my buds class rolled around. So I ended up going working in Millington, Tennessee at the time where Bupers was. So I ended up working for, well, then it was Commander Pybus. Now I think it's what, Rear Admiral Pybus at the time now. Yeah. And um, so I worked for him for a little bit. And then uh, January, January 4th, January 7th, 2001, my, uh, my class formed up. Is when nice. I checked into uh, Buds and, and went that way. And so then uh, in 2001 is when I went. Um, I walked across the border, like I said, in the beginning of January and graduated August 20th. And uh, it's kind of funny because, well, it's not funny, but a lot of the stories that we're hearing now about, you know, Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle was two classes ahead of me. Um, so we, we passed each other, not that he knew me. But, you know, Discovery Channel class, 234 was being filmed. I mean, they were that class before me. Uh, Mike Murphy was in my class. He and I spent many weekends together going out trying to pick up chicks, drinking beers and everything else. So all these, all these stories that we're hearing now are like in the era that I was in it. It's just yeah. kind of, it's really, I don't know. It's just kind of weird seeing all that like stuff come public for different reasons. But yeah, you know, David Goggins book, David Goggins was in my boat crew when he, uh, the third time he went through. And so um, it's kind of interesting hearing 
people ask me like, oh, you know, you know David Goggins? I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> we spent some time underneath some rubber together. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's uh same thing as I've got a bunch of guys that I knew and now they're out and they're famous and it's, uh, it's like, whoa, that's kind of cool. It's surreal, right? It's a little surreal moments with, uh, all these guys that still have that same hunger inside the military to achieve the highest kind of level of occupation that you can have. And then they get out and they do the same thing out here. It's awesome to see that stuff. I love it when guys are crushing it. And, uh, but I got to ask you a question. It's pretty serious. Uh, do you know, do you know the root word of to, um, officer? Root word? No. It's office. It's office. <laughs> hey, I was yeah. one of the PowerPoint commando, man. <laughs> and I made yeah. that out of those things that I needed to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you guys get good at that stuff, man. I, that's the other thing people don't realize about the military is that it, you are constantly having to sell. You know, I think people have a vision that, especially with like SEAL teams or the special operations community, you just get handed a mission and then you go out and do it. And it's like, no, no, no. We got guys like Jeff who has to work on PowerPoints 24 seven, and then he's going to get up in front of some decision makers and then he's going to present how we would do that operation. Those same decision makers then watch the army do it. They watch our Marine brothers do it. And then the decision makers go, you know, I like the SEALs plan the best. And so I think it's, you know, I think it's funny. Every time I tell people that, they're like, wait a minute, what? I'm like, yeah, we, we have to sell our missions in order to go on them. It's not as easy as, hey, you're just going to go do this, you know, right? I mean, how many times did you have to sell yourself? And then you have to do a three variations with good, better, and best. You know, if we right. had all the classes in the world, this is how we would do it. If we had... Uh, if we had the basics, this is how we do it. But then if we really, and I'm like, why would you always set yourself up for like the worst possible way to I think we can get it done? Of course, no team guy's going to be like, no, we can't do it. So, right. you know, yeah. but it's, yeah, yeah, you're right. But I appreciate it. I think the best compliment I've ever, I've ever gotten was, and I've had it from a couple people, was that they're like, wait, you're an officer? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm like, thank you. That, that means a lot to me. Yeah, only only in our community are uh, is that really a great compliment. <laughs> so, it's what sets us apart, you know. I think people also think we're like knight in shining armor, and I'm real quick to correct people. No, 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 no. We're more like dirty, dirty pirates. So that's kind of what we like, and that's how that's how we get away with what we get away with, right? Um, now. Talking about surviving a dangerous situation, right? Obviously, this podcast is all about you have a really great story. And uh, I think, you know, you became what was a commander of the Navy parachute team, the Leapfrogs, correct? Yes. Now, tell tell that story. Like, you show up and they're like, Do you, are you free fall qualified? And you're like, no. And then, yeah, take, take us through that. It's pretty interesting. So I was overseas my first deployment as the assistant officer in charge with um, with Bravo Platoon. And I had a fantastic officer in charge, Aaron Johnson, AJ, awesome dude. Really, really looked up to him and uh, learned a lot from him. And so at the time it was, I was one of four people that were on a short list to go do, to fly a desk, root word, over in Guam. And I was like, ah, oh, dude, I did not come to the Navy to fly a desk. I want to continue kicking indoors. And I thought, I'm like, man, maybe this is where I get out. I, I don't know, because I don't want to spend four years. And it was, as an officer, you have to do a disassociated tour. So you learn the bigger uh, 
perspective of the Navy. So some guys go to SBU units, some guys are lucky, continue kicking the doors, but you've got to do something different. And so uh, I was talking with my CEO at the time, and he was trying to get another officer to go be the officer in charge of the jump team. And then he's like, sir, no, thank you. I want to stay married. No, they, they travel a time, et cetera. And he looks at me, he's like, what about you, Reeves? And I'm like, I'm not even free fall called. How am I going to be in charge of a free fall jump team? And he says, ah, figure it out and you get there. I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay, great. I want to learn yeah. how to, I wanted to learn how to jump on a plane. So that's cool stuff. And so, uh, and I didn't want to go to Guam for three years. And so I was like, okay, you know, put me in. Well, the next morning he goes, congratulations, you got the job. I'm like, what? I'm like, oh shoot. Okay. So I come out, I get transferred over to the West coast. And as you said, here I am the youngest dude on the team. I'm not even free fall qual and I'm the guy in charge. Right. So a lot of it, well, as soon as I checked in, I immediately went to free fall school and I didn't say, I didn't say shit. I just got my mouth shut, ears and eyes open, and I just picked up everything I could. And that continued until, and I, that continued until like, you know, probably six months into my tour. And I think the one thing about that was, is I knew what I, I knew what I didn't know and I knew what I was good at. And I figured mm -hmm. you're the officer, so do the officer shit really well because that's what they need out of you. You're not here just to be another a jumper, which eventually I became when I got on my jumps up, I got the quals and everything else. But at the other time, like show up early, stay late, stay with the rigors, learn how to pack, repack, learn everything you possibly can about that industry because there's so much information. Mm -hmm. And when it comes time to do the officer stuff, you do that exceptionally well. And I remember there was, a, I had a chief on the, um, the chief on the team at the time um, came over to me. He's like, hey, sir, I'm, you know, I'm giving you my eval. Just look over his protocol, but it's good. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, I'll look it over. Thanks a lot. And, you know, we at the time, depending how the platoon is run, you had to go and the officers would kind of rewrite the evals and make sure the guys get promoted. I'm not kidding you. I took that thing home and I stayed up all night looking at it and wordsmithing the hell out of that thing. And I, and I printed it up on a separate piece of paper. And I came back and I'm like, hey, I looked at it last night. It looks really good. If you want, here's some recommendations. Just completely up to you. He's like, okay, thanks. After lunch, he came back and he was like, Hey, sir, that was really good. Thanks a lot. I'm going to use some of your <laughs> advice. I'm like, oh, cool. It's up to you. You know, no problem. I'm to tell you how to do your job. Just there you go. And at the end, word. I'm like, word. yes. So, <laughs> yeah. But um, that was probably one of the best. That is probably one of the best tours in the Navy that a lot of people don't know about or yeah. a lot of people criticize because you're not overseas kicking indoors. But at the same time, there's a reason why that job exists. And you're kind of like the Blue Angels with parachutes. And it is highly dangerous. I mean, people don't realize like what we do under canopy. And as much as you did, we did get made fun of by for what we we're doing. Um, there, the majority of people that I met, like frog, like team guys, frogs would come out to the drop zone in Scott of San Diego, and we would be like, "Hey, so, so what's this thing all about?" I'm like, "I'll tell you what. I'll jump. You mind if I jump with you? Cool. You know." And we would set it up so I would come and I put my my parachute right next to them, and like rub end cells. And these dudes were like. But no, get out of here. <laughs> get away from me. Anybody here. I'm like, wait a minute, where are you going? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, you're doing some pretty dynamic, dangerous stuff when you're slamming parachutes into each other and you're climbing down each other's lines and yeah. you're getting entangled and you're getting wraps and there's no pause button. I mean, you're, you're, you're sinking that thing. You're riding it out to the very end and hopefully it doesn't come to an abrupt stop, but. 
Right. I, I was always impressed with you guys. And, uh, you know, back when they used to do the 4th of July demonstrations, or you just happened to be, if I happened to be in a city training and you guys rolled in to jump into an NFL game, or, uh, you know, I know they, the NFL games, X games, baseball games, you guys are jumping in to these little itty bitty drop zones and, on your way there, you're pulling off just great, incredible feats, aerodynamic, aerial stunt things, right, in the sky, the biplanes and everything else. And so tell me about you You basically got into a situation, right? You're, you, uh, you're coming, what were you, coming into a stadium? I need a break from the smoldering handsomeness of Jeff Reeves. More after this. While we're cooling off, be sure to subscribe, review, and share Can You Survive This Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, so um, we were um, we were training on a brownfield, and thank God it was a training scenario. Not oh, training, actual, okay. Not an actual demonstration. And so the winds were, usually the winds come out of the west from the ocean side and come across. And this particular day, it was out of the east. And no big deal. I mean, the drop zone, you're coming from different angles all the time. Because if you think about it, like when you're, when you typically jump into a stadium, you are in downtown, whatever city, there's skyscrapers all around, there's highways moving right around the area, there's parking lots full of cars. The best place you have to land that thing is on that 100 yards of a football field or in the outfield of the baseball field. That is your biggest clearing area. Yeah. You have to get it from two and a half miles up when you jump from 13,500 feet. And so, uh, so the, the equivalent would be if you were to stand up and you put a quarter on the ground and that's the stadium from like your perspective, that's what the perspective is from 13,500 feet. Wow. And so in this training day down in Brown, um, the winds were out of the East. We set, we were in a C-130, we jumped out, um, did some, we linked up, we were doing uh, side planes, doing some rotations some base pins and stuff like that, uh, under canopy. And then we're like, huh, like the winds are gusting a little bit more than we thought. Like, you know what, let's just break apart and then just take it in just to make sure that we all get back. It's like, okay. And my buddy that I was working with, he was on a 218 square parachute. I was on a 235 square foot parachute. And he, he had a bit better drive than I did. And so he made it back fine. And as I was coming in, I didn't want to uh, figure out that I wasn't going to clear the telephone lines as I got there. I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bail. I'll land in the parking lot. I'll get made fun of, whatever. But I'll jump in, you know, get right back on the plane and do it again. And as I was coming in, I was like, okay, I uh, didn't know if I was gonna clear the, the, the telephone line, so I went left, lined up on the parking lot, and then all of a sudden, the parking lot was a the parking area for a one for an old terminal that was now a restaurant. And there were telephone poles or like light poles in the middle of it, and cars started moving around. It was the last time you were driving your car looking up for skydivers. And I was like, nope, it's going to work. And so I, I went left again. And meanwhile, like I'm coming down. As I said, there is no pause button. You got to make decisions now. Right. And so I went left again. I landed on the tarmac side of the airport, which no big deal. We land on cement all the time. But as I was coming in, the winds that were out of the east were hitting the front side of the building, coming up and pushing down on the back side, which then did not help when, the, as I was coming in, I front risered changed the attack angle of my parachute to pick up speed in order to flare and land. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see the twin turboprop plane that was on to my left because I was above it. So I couldn't hear the, uh, couldn't hear the blades and the blades were fully spinning because he was about to taxi out because they were, I couldn't see him. And as I came in behind him, the dirty air collapsed my parachute, the wind 
pushed down, which kind of tackled it. And from about 30, 35 feet up, I went back into free fall and just smacked like a ton of bricks into the cement. Damn. And um, with a bilateral calcaneus fracture, so I ended up crushing both my feet, both my heels. And that began a, began a long road of recovery, right, to learn how to walk again. But yeah. that was jump 164, and I've got over 1,000 jumps now. So I should have learned, but I did it. <laughs> that's yeah that's early on in your uh, in your jumping career too um i think i think too it's important for people to understand the size of parachutes right so you big parachutes fly slow and clumsy then you've got what these guys are jumping they're jumping equivalent to a tablecloth right i mean <laughs> it's tiny so it means it just goes so fast which means that tactical decision making on the fly becomes really important when you say yeah, you've got to make decisions fast because, um, and it's like kind of like looking at it backwards where if I want to be here, like down here at a certain point, you kind of have to walk it back up to know you got to start here. But for example, um, my one friend, this is, I mean, we did the, the smallest we ever jumped, I think for like our camera guy was like a 150 elliptical. And to your point, you know, cross brace, elliptical, squares, seven cell, nine cell, they all changed the, the attitude of flight under canopy. And um, you could do, like on the what we had, you could do a toggle turn. So simply pull your toggle and you could turn 350 feet in the air. You could do a riser turn, which is grabbing the whole like change in the attitude and you could drop 600 feet in the air. And you all, you want to know that on every single one, not when you're high, not low. But right. your point, like on those small little, we call them malfunction magnets. Like I had a buddy as a sport parachute would, would jump an 88 square foot parachute. Damn. And, when he would do a, a, a riser turn, he would have to start at 1,200 feet up. And when he finished a 360 on that, he was at the ground, surfing across the ground. And it sounded like a freight train coming in because the air being pulled into the front of that was just massive. It sounded like a train coming yeah, in. That's insane. You guys can keep that shit. I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick with big, slow ones. I'm, I'm good with that. Um, all right. So... You, yeah, you you break your uh, you break your feet basically. You've got what nine pins, ten pins in each foot, or some crazy. Ten screws, titanium plate in my right foot. Four screws in my left foot. Was bedridden for a month. Was in a wheelchair for four. I had to learn how to walk again. And just because they told me the best that I would come away with would be a at twenty six years old would be a limp and a cane. Yeah. I was like, no, not happening. And yeah. year to the date that I actually stood up for the first time. I ran a marathon uh, with um, the chief of staff's aide at the time just to prove that I could do it. And I was like, I'm good. Don't want to do that again. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great overcome story for sure. I mean, that would, uh, any, anything that, any tips you've got for people that, uh, you know, they find themselves injured sitting around, uh, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, some people have asked me, like, how did you overcome it knowing that? And I, I said, um, I mean, like my whole world changed. And there was not, we did not know if I was going to be able to come back after that to any certain level. And um, I lived alone at the time and I lived on the top floor. I mean, I did at the time have a girlfriend that came and visited me to her credit, but the day Monday through Friday was all on me. And I said, um, allow yourself to be pissed at the world and everything for 24 hours. I mean, just get it out of your system. Because after that, it does you no good to harbor that and hold it in. You've got to mm -hmm. find ways to come around it and look at the positive of it. And just, just do the work. Do the work. Do the rehab. Do the um, Be positive about it. Find a way. But 
if you consistently hold that grudge in, you're never gonna, it's a long, that's a long road then. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, uh, I hated everything and everybody. <laughs> I bet, man. You're watching the world go by as you're sitting there injured. I know how that goes. Metallica, corn, um, just hate music, blaring, <laughs> uh, just, you know, at, at the world. It's like, okay, here we go. Nice. That's uh yeah well look at you now so let's uh, let's let's skip forward a little bit changing gears literally and let's get into this uh, high performance driving gig you've got going on for Aston Martin I mean it's one thing if you said hey, I'm a high performance driver for Chevy or for Ford but no no you're you're Aston Martin which is uh, obviously the James Bond cars and uh, they're just sexy sleek and cool but how the hell did you get into that. So after I got out of the military and I was uh, getting involved with acting and uh, starting some business and all this stuff, I actually started a action sports clothing line. And um, I was like, well, I got the parachute side of it because I had bought wingsuits, bought parachutes, kept that up. And at the time, I was working as a liaison, um, as a product specialist for several different car companies. And one day I'm like, I'm tired of talking about them. I want to start racing them. So I called several friends that I had met that had actually professionally raced. I said, I want to do what you do. How do you do it? And the first answer was, well, start with your four years old. I said, yeah, not going to happen because I'm, I'm like 30. So, okay. Yeah. And uh, they actually recommend some, some racing schools. And I went to every racing school that was uh, recommended to me, I went to. And uh, eventually through networking, I was doing some public speaking at the time, talking about teamwork, effective communication and leadership to major corporations. And uh, I had done some work for this one gentleman before. And Having gone to all those racing schools, acquired all the gear, like fire suits, racing shoes, racing gloves, Nomex, a racing helmet, the Hans device and everything, because I, I was serious. I really wanted to get racing now. Um, he's like, how's that going? And eventually worked out a deal where he became a part sponsor. And we went out and we acquired other sponsors. And next thing you know, I'm racing for Nissan. I uh, raced with them in the Grand Am Continental Tire Series. And my co-driver that I had in the endurance format also raced for a sprint format in the world uh, in uh, the uh, Pirelli World Championship PwC, which is now SRO. And so, after a couple of years racing in uh, Grand Am Continental Tire, I switched over to him. And with my sponsors, we bought a Chevy Camaro, full GT4 spec race car, and ended up racing for several years in the uh, Pirelli World Challenge program. So, went from racing Nissan to racing for Chevy professionally. Amazing, amazing environment. I loved it. Um, I then was like, okay, you got to pick, like, are you going to continue racing professionally and put every penny and effort into it to try to make it or create a lifestyle and come back to racing? And I kind of had a, a rich dad, poor dad mentors in racing. And I noticed the difference between those who didn't have money, but were fantastic drivers, were not mm. getting rides because, you know, no matter how good they were, because the money aspect, but those who were very good drivers with money backing always got rides. I thought, okay, wow. time to build a lifestyle. And so, um, and so, yeah, so then I, I kind of had one foot in, one foot out, ended up doing working with dealerships as far as like high performance driving, where those who bought Ferraris, Lamborghinis, McLarens, Astons at these dealerships would eventually go to track days. And I would get hired out as the pro driver to go show them how to drive their cars or sit right seat with them. And eventually that worked all the way up to, I became one of the few high performance drivers for Aston Martin. And I worked with them exclusively for four or five years. And it was phenomenal. 
great, great uh, opportunity. And that was all the way up until COVID. So when the World Endurance Championship factory team from Aston Martin came into the Americas, I was part of the team that went out. They got to work with them, not drive the car, but work with the marketing team, talk with the drivers, work with the drivers, make sure that they were where they needed to be for their presentations or um um, signings and stuff like that outside of at the racetrack when the Red Bull Aston Martin F1 team came to either Mexico City to Austin Texas or to Montreal I again went out with a with a part of the team to work with the marketing aspect of the F1 team and also worked with the hotlet program that that Pirelli was putting on for the F1 circuit that they took global and that was amazing I mean meeting the F1 drivers uh, meeting some of the historic F1 drivers, working with Aston Martin, the racing side of it, working with the Red Bull team, just phenomenal. phenomenal. Yeah. Yes. So well, like, when a lot of the new cars came out uh, for the public, like the DB11, the DBS, the Vantage, I would be with the car six months beforehand, before it even became a public thing, and working and getting those very first orders with exclusive people or... Um, learning all about the cars, taking on test drives, uh, giving people test drives in it so that I can properly represent the car. So it was, it was phenomenal. It was really a great experience. Yeah, it sounds like such an awesome deal. And I'm noticing that there's a whole other, it's like the military. You've got all this jargon you're saying that I have no clue what it means. <laughs> So yeah, that, like every world has its own language, right? So, but I mean, the really important stuff and you know, what I really want to get down to is, so how many, how many cars have you had sex in? How many Aston Martins have you had sex in? <laughs> um, well, the, the, I will say this, the newer models do offer more interior room than the previous generation. So you can really stretch out in those things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the passenger seat. <laughs> I mean, I got to assume you're driving these things, you're hanging out in uh, some pretty exclusive areas with some pretty high-end vehicles. So, I mean, you've checked that box then a couple of times, I'm guessing. It's, uh, I do enjoy working for S and Martin. <laughs> <laughs> and so now you have two of these things, not one, you have two Aston Martins. It is not lost on me that I do have two Aston Martins. I'm very lucky. I know whether, uh, having worked with dealerships, knowing what models to get and when, what their prices should be. Um, I do, I have a, uh, 2013 Vantage V8. It is a phenomenal car, 4.7 liter V8 engine. Um, and then I also have a 2012 DBS, which I thought was one of the most beautiful cars ever made. And I always said, if I have an opportunity to get one, I'm going to get one. Um, it is the, it is very, it is the, it is the James Bond car that Daniel Craig had in, well, the 2012 was in Quantum Solace. So that opening yeah. scene where he's in Italy going through the, the quarry, I have the, I have that car, not that particular car, but that model car. That and model. I V12 engine. It just hers it's the only uh, it's the only time i've ever giggled when i when i bought a car and that was one was my race car and then <laughs> yeah the second time was this one and i'm like oh my gosh i can't believe i got this car i can't believe i got this car so yeah boys and their toys they say i'm i'm right there with you but what i found pretty cool that you did is your license plates right you did the exact license plate number sequence alphanumeric sequence that's the license plate in the movie right Correct. Yeah. So on the uh, on the the DBS, I actually have the alphanumeric license plate that James Bond has that that car has in Quantum of Solace, and then <laughs> in, um, so cool. on my V8 Vantage, 
it's it's not the same, but like the inspector, the DB10 that came out, it's a the license plate is DB10 AGB. And I kind of found a license plate for my vantage, even though it's kind of the predecessor to it. I'm like, screw it. And I got that. And so that's sitting on my car too. That is so cool, man. I love it. That's super creative. You know, I don't know that everybody thinks about all those little details. So, you know, that's uh Kudos to you. Um, now, with all the driving, high speed, all that stuff, has there ever been an, an incident where you're like, holy shit, I almost killed myself? And then, you know, was there, a, was there a, a, any kind of trick or tip that came out of that, that type of uh, potential wreck or dangerous situation? Yes, uh, self-induced that yeah, faster than I needed to. But uh, one that, um, when, I, I, when you say that, it just pops in my head. Uh, at the time, prior to these cars, I had two C6 Corvettes. Absolutely loved those cars. And matter of fact, like, I love them so much that I was not done with the first one. I had to get a second one. And I remember I was driving <laughs> up to a race, and I went through the back hills of uh, California because we are going up to Laguna Seca. And I picked up my friend, we were, who was the, my photographer at the time, and we rolled out and we went through the back hills. And as we were having fun with the turns and, and doing everything, on a blind turn comes a flatbed 18-wheeler the other way. And on the 90-degree angle, when the cab was on one side of that 90-degree, the back half of the trailer was still on the other, and the flatbed went across my lane. And it was, I mean, I looked at this, and it was like all of a sudden – there and i remember as i was coming up to it my friend in the passenger seat she goes oh shit and all i remember doing is taking the taking the car putting it it was a cliff because we're on the mountainside it was cliff down to my right and it, i was which on my side and i just remember putting two wheels on the dirt to get to maximize my wide my lane and coming straight across on the other side where my back left tail light almost hits the bumper of the car and maximizing the far left side of the lane to get around that thing. And when we were done, I actually slowed way down and I'm doing like through a school zone. <laughs> I don't think if I was with anybody else, we would have gotten out of that. Like, I mean, it just happened that quick and it was just right. reactive. I think it's one of those things where you understand vehicle dynamics and how the weight shifts in a car and knowing, I remember thinking, I put two wheels on there, especially with the drive wheel being on the right, this thing has a possibility to slip. So versus hitting the brakes or hitting the gas or having maintenance throttle when you're going through something like that to, un, to balance the car out or to make sure you don't make it unsteady or when the RPMs hit and all of a sudden it spins you around. And I, I remember afterwards, I'm just like, it just happened and you just did it versus... Um, yeah, it was something stupid, and we after that it was like speeding all the way there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was real lucky. Yeah, yeah, man, that sounds that sounds uh, it sounds familiar. I mean, I've obviously had some my moments too, but you bring up some great points that I like to push. Is that you know, in any of the driving schools I went to, they were mostly like offensive, defensive stuff. It was hey, all terrain is drivable. You know, we feel like we are confined to the paint on the road. And the reality is, is you can leverage everything to get yourself out of trouble. And you should. Um, and I think, too, uh, you bring up acceleration, deceleration, and the brakes, right? I mean, a lot of people want to stomp on their brakes, which is what makes it worse. Um, so remember, all terrain is drivable. Don't feel like you're a prisoner between yellow and white lines because you're not. And acceleration 
is sometimes your best friend in a lot of these vehicle issues, vehicle, potential vehicle accidents. And it's it's the it's like the shifting of weight. Like yeah. I actually, I te- one of my things like when I teach classes or when I talk to people about driving, as a hold up like a half bottle of water. I'm like, okay, here's the front and the rear. If I'm going to put weight to the front of the car, what are the three ways I can do it? I'm going to put weight to the rear of the car. What are the three ways I can do it? And when sometimes just lifting is better than going to the brakes, just to shift the weight and not have a gap or between you know traffic or something like that. Yeah. And then the other part is proper seating and proper vision, which majority of people do not do. I mean, I can tell if you know what you're doing when you get a car just by the way you set up your seat. And it's either yeah. going to be like, oh God, here we go. Or it's like, sweet, this is, this is going to be a <laughs> So having your seat fully reclined and you can barely reach the steering wheel, that's, that's not good for... Oh, it's great. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So before we move into your uh, very dangerous, and I got to say, it's a very personalized scenario that the team put together for you. So before we get there, we cannot move forward without talking about you. Uh, so Navy SEAL, uh, basically a race car driver, and also the actor. And then not just a guy that hung out in Hollywood hoping for, you know, I mean, everyone's hoping for the break, I guess, but I think it's important to note that you actually, I think it's one of my favorite things, is you are like a regular on Days of Our Lives. More with the star of Navy SEALs versus Zombies, Jeff Reeves, after the break. And if you want to learn how to survive zombies in the real world, be sure to check out my book series, 100 Deadly Skills, wherever books are sold. Uh, I appreciate that. I don't know if I would talk about <laughs> but I, I did. So I think I've got like over 80, 80 episodes and three different soap operas total. And right. yeah, that was on Days of Our Lives. I think I'm over like 50 episodes or something like that. Well, the reason I, reason I bring it up and like it is because when I was in college, we didn't have streaming crap and we didn't have a thousand cable channels. You had what was on in the middle of the day and you didn't have any other choices and so all the channels had soap operas going, but if I was in between classes or skipping classes in college, I watched Days of Our Lives. <laughs> How many of you guys have you actually admitted that to? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, heck, and there's nothing else. You're like, well, I'll watch this. And then you find yourself with those damn shows. You can wait 20 years and turn it on and it's as if a day didn't even go by no script writers i don't know how they pull it off but they get you sucked in they keep people sucked in and but the reality is they're just repeating the same damn thing over and over again yeah, yeah. i was from an actor's point of view uh, i mean i'm very lucky to have to uh be on the show i actually really did enjoy the show there's always a place in my heart because that was the first acting gig i ever had yeah and, um and then i i mean um it was a great learning experience. It's some of the best like on the job training I think you ever had. Cause you have to learn so much. I mean, if you're a full-time actor, you've got to learn like a ton of dialogue real quick. And it's funny because you'll have people they'll be sitting there and they'll be like, okay, I'm okay. And we're, we're on in three, two, and they'll, they'll dump it right off screen. And then they're into it. <laughs> they got to hit it because you may not have another take. And yeah. so if it's, if it's take three, if it's take four, it's the scene from hell. And, you know, you may have like the greatest take and there's a boom microphone in there. Like, oh, got to do it again. And you may yeah. not have a, a, such a good take the next time. Doesn't matter. Moving on. And so there is no like, hey, give me one more take on it. There's no 20, 30, 40 takes that you hear actors, like you hear movie actors going. But, uh, I mean, it is impressive with 
watching those that are on there and learning from them. And it's just, man, like it, it, I actually enjoyed it for learning, like yeah. picking up lines, delivering it the first time without being like, oh, okay, okay let, me, let me do it one more time. No, it's like, you got to nail it. Right. Because I mean, the tempo, man, those soap operas are coming out every day. Every day. And the thing, like you got to get ahead of it if you want to have a two week hiatus for Christmas or anywhere else in there. So I, th- well, I was with my buddy, we were, uh, he was a regular on All My Children, Ricky Paul Golden, phenomenal dude. I love that guy. He, um, he was, a, he was a, a, a regular and had a major role on All My Children. And I think I, when I was working on the show in New York with him, uh, I flew in for it, stayed with him. He was shooting nine episodes in five days. And I don't recall during that week having a normal conversation with him. Besides, like, hello, good morning. What do you want in your coffee? Awesome, cool. And then we were white one in lines. Damn. And we were just crushing it. As soon as we were done, boom, on to the next one. And I mean, he literally had like a stack of scripts that big. And it was, oh. it was again, a great learning tool to, to yeah. watch and understand that. So having that as your foundation, and I like to bring it up just because, you know, that's that's like, for me, that's like old school, right? I'm a... Uh, I think I'm a couple of years older than you, not by much, but enough to go, all right, days of our lives. Yeah. That's like retro for me, you know? Um, now you moved in. What was your favorite, like big feature film that you got to play in? Um, I think my favorite one was the first one I was in was Transformers. Yeah. Uh, I, I was on that. I was on that one for like three weeks in the beginning. We got to play all over Hoover Dam, Las Vegas, and got to do some stuff here. Uh, well, at the time, locally in Culver City. Um, but one, because it was Transformers, actually seeing that whole world come to life was pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. Two, it was like the first film I was in, so you know, just being a part of that. But I then came back as part of Transformers Two and worked on that for like three months, and that was fantastic. On that, because just seeing how it, how it evolved and moved. Um, but I think those two, because the people we met uh, working with the different other military guys in there, having like Josh and Tyrese, they were all like really great and warming, accepting, and they wanted to get it right, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, and it's, especially in Transformers 2, when we were out in Alamo Road in New Mexico, we were like our own little family. I mean, right. we really all banded together and it was cool. It, and that was, that was neat. So yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, Michael Bay productions are just massive in scale. And like, again, when you show up, it's like you got to stretch out because you'll be running, you'll be shooting, things will blow up, and you got to nail it. So. Yeah, quite the show, man. That, that's, uh, that, you've, you've knocked out some big pieces. I mean, some people spend a lifetime dry, trying to achieve a lot of the things you've already knocked out, and you still got a lot of time left. So, But not much. Not, I'll say right now, you're, you don't have much time left when I get you into this scenario. You're fucked. <laughs> All right. So let's get this thing growing. Let's see if you can survive this podcast. So you got to pay attention to the details up front. Remember, this is all about learning, right? We're going to have some fun with it. But for those listening, uh, pay attention to uh, some of the explanations because it is there where you get to learn. And if you find yourself having a good day that goes bad, uh, it is my hope that you have some of these skills uh, to help you get through it. But these are all built into some pretty fun scenarios. So here we go. This is the Pulp Fiction meets Mission Impossible survival scenario for Jeff Reeves. This one is a little crazy but we want to test your scuba and driving skills all in one run. So the purpose of uh, this podcast, obviously, and uh, your mission 
is you're just going to accept it because you don't have a choice. You're accepting the mission, all right? Your friend, and this is a friend to many of our guests, Jim. Jim is always troubled. Jim is always causing trouble. Uh, and it's always, some, well, sometimes it's our guest job to get Jim out of trouble. So we'll call him Jim. And uh, he's in a tough spot as usual, and he needs someone with your expertise to get him out of a bind. He owes some money to some really dangerous people, okay? You're out on Jim's boat, okay? And he has a briefcase, much like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Are you a Pulp Fiction fan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who isn't, right? Uh, the case has to be delivered to a very serious kingpin, okay? And if the case doesn't get there today, all right, Jim is toast, all right? And you're a good friend, so you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll hook you up, buddy. Let me see what I can do. The kingpin is waiting for you in a diner, the address of which is in the GPS that you will find here pretty soon. It won't be easy to get there. You'll have people gunning for you the whole way. All right? But if you get to the diner, the enemies are not allowed to follow you inside. This is probably a kingpin roll, right? You just get to the diner, then you're going to be all right. All right. So a lot of bad people are trying to get uh, the case. Jim asks you to please get to the car waiting for you on shore with the GPS that will direct you to the location where you have to drop the case off. All right. You'll know the car when you see it. All right. Aston Martin? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Jim has scuba gear and a dry bag for the case. Remember, enemies will be trying to steal the case from you uh, on your route, uh, so you have to be discreet. Okay? You got all that? Jim has a scuba gear and a dry bag for the case. Yes. Yep. So, here we go. You get your scuba gear on. You've, uh, you've, got, the, you've got the case and the dry bag, and it's time to go on uh, dive status. Do you A turtle back as far as possible then swim or scuba to land uh, basically getting to the car as quickly as possible so the potential enemies don't notice you or B go on dive status immediately and get to the shoreline uh, basically you know you're just staying discreet A turtle back for a while or B you're just going to go on dive status and get there does distance to shoreline or time of day matter no discretion is all that matters here it's so then i would go on dive status and disappear underwater and go all the way that's it all right i like it so you stay below the surface uh is the most surefire way uh to swim to land undetected as we know operatives will often use this known uh stroke or swim but we are going to put you underwater because you're on scuba um, while below, your scuba mask becomes flooded, okay? Do you, A, rate, go to the surface and just clear your mask, or B, clear your mask below water? Clear your mask below water. That's right. And how do you do that, Jeff? Well, make uh, so that the mask is the hottest part, push on the top of the mask, blow gently through your nose, and it all clears out the bottom. But do it carefully so you don't just pull this huge bubbles up from the bottom. You can actually do it very slowly. You actually see the water line come down nice and gently. 
Yeah. So most people don't know by just putting that back pressure inside the cavity of your mask and by uh, putting pressure also on the opposite side of where the water is, you can actually push the water right out um, without ever going to the surface. So, yep, you are, man, you're on a roll here. So you're getting all the right answers so far. Discretion is key. You tilt your head back and get the water to pool into the bottom of the mask, put pressure on the upper opposite side of the mask, and then uh, blow gently with your nose. All right, remaining below the surface ensures discretion. Being that discretion is key here, as whatever is whatever it is you're carrying is worth a lot, and the bad guys you know, will be coming for you. It's important to remember that clearing your mask underwater can create bubbles, and you already kind of started to answer this, bubbles. So do you A, Make sure you use your hands to fan the bubbles as they escape your mask. Or B, just keep on swimming. Who cares about bubbles? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, to be honest, like the further out in the water you are, the better, because you're going to have like waves mask it. But yeah, the yeah. better thing to do if you were closer to the to the threat would be to fan your fan the bubbles That's right. up in smaller ones. Break those bubbles up and make small ones so that the water isn't boiling if bad guys happen to be above you standing on a pier or standing on the edge of a boat. Yeah, exactly. Distance from the target definitely determines this. So bubbles rising to the surface is just a way of uh, giving yourself to the bad guys. Um, you don't want to do that. You make, it to the, you make it to the shoreline. After getting your clothes on, you discover a 2008 Vantage V8. Aston Martin. Ah. <laughs> it's a six-speed manual transmission. You fire up the engine, and the GPS guides you towards your drop site. All right, where you gotta deliver this this very nefarious case. As you speed along towards your destination, you see a roadblock ahead. All right, see a road head block ahead. Oh, you just flip open the center console, hit the missile button, and blow it away. There you go. Yeah, the missiles. Yes, got to have those. I like the ejection seat, personally. <laughs> all right, this this definitely ain't the cops ahead, all right? So as you get close, you see guns drawn and aimed directly in your direction. It's an ambush. Whatever in this... Okay, so, you know, I think you kind of know where we're going here. It's a roadblock. It's an ambush. Do you, A, gun it and smash through the gunman and the roadblock... Or B, slow to about 30 miles per hour, rip the E-brake, and perform a J-turn, and quickly head in the opposite direction. The J-brake, or hit the, the uh, J-turn and get out of there. That's right. Right? We want to save our... Basically, vehicles in these types of situations are looked at as a last resort weapon. Uh, the last thing you want to do is damage it, um, because now you're left on foot. And it's not difficult, right, to... If you have a front-mounted engine in a vehicle uh it doesn't take much to destroy that engine or cause a problem that could then put you stranded and at the hands of the bad guys and uh so j turns how do you perform them uh j turn technique yeah backwards or forwards um you gotta kind of get the whip going so if i want to go to the op if i whatever direction i want to go i start the opposite side to build up that um pendulum motion and then whip the thing around um and then dump it into gear and go. So yeah. if you're backwards, you're in reverse, go on, start, if I you know, come out one way, then slam it back the other way, counter steer, catch the slide, drop it, uh, put it in the neutral, then uh, put it into drive, and then away you go. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think, um, and haven't you noticed it's gotten more and more difficult to find e-brakes, right? Everything's electronic braking now. Which, especially as a right as a right seat driver, which more and more these days I don't like because there's a lot of horsepower with people that don't know how to use it, and I'm just pretty much going on a roller coaster ride where before I could hit the hold the button down to stabilize the back end, and I guess you can kind of like some days on some cars you can hold up the electronic e-brake in the middle if it's in the middle, but even then you just I yeah got cable in the middle. Yeah. But for the going forward um, for the J turn, simply you, like, you begin the pendulum action again, and then you just like goose the throttle. You do that, you brake traction, spin the car around, make sure you don't over rotate the car because then that could be bad. Mm -hmm. And do a 360 install, but then just do enough again, catch the steering, hit the gas, and away you go. And you're out of there. Right. So. You, uh, you do this maneuver flawlessly because you're a high-performance driver for Aston Martin. Um, and now you are flying in the other direction, all right? And uh, the GPS reroutes you because we're fortunate to have those these days. Just tell you, no, no, now you go this way. Um, and you're getting close to a drop site, except obviously from this different direction. Now a large van pulls out right in front of you. It almost sounds like an experience you explained earlier. Uh, it's right in front of you at an intersection. Um, you slam on the brakes to avoid the collision. The van doors fly open, right? Straight out of Hollywood. And you got a bunch of bad guys that exit the van and approach you. So do you a get out of the car and take cover or B throw the Aston Martin in reverse and execute a reverse 180 in the opposite direction. Do the, do the, um, so they asked Martin Reverse to the 180 go in the other direction. <laughs> yes. Um, now, you know, the, the the difference between J-turns and, you know, the reverse 180. J-turns, you're not having to deal with gears too much because you're flying, you're driving forward and then you're going to hit the e-brake, you're going to get your rear tires floating, and then you're going to whip that steering wheel, which moves the ass end around to behind you, and then you're going the opposite direction all the time, leaving it in drive. Now, a reverse 180 gets a little more technical right because now you got to put it in reverse you got to get a little bit of speed we say three car lengths worth of speed and then you're going to whip the steering wheel and while that front end rotates around in the opposite direction you have to consciously go to neutral and then to drive and then hit the gas and get out of there without stripping the gears or leaving your transmission behind <laughs> right once again you don't want to um, mess up your last resort weapon which is the three to six thousand pound vehicle that you're driving depending on whether it's a you know a sedan or an suv so uh yes use it go to your local rental car and get the full insurance that's right drive it like a rental <laughs> which we've all done several times okay so you put the car in reverse now you're going the uh yeah you're getting the opposite direction um, GPS reroutes you again. Now you have several blocks to the drop site. Traffic is getting a little dense here. All right, the cars behind you, cars in front of you. Next thing you know, the van is back. Right, it's Hollywood magic. Damn things just show up, and uh, there's always more men than uh, than were before. Uh, they zoom up next to you and then aiming their guns at you. All right, do you a Drive aggressively, weaving through the traffic and try to escape them. Or B, perform a pit maneuver. Which one are you going for? I would do the pit maneuver. Yeah. Along next to me, align my front wheel with their rear wheel, 
do not slam into them hard. Ease your car into them. That's right. Car into them, break their traction, have them spin out in front of you and drive to where they were, not where they're going and just let them spin out um, the opposite way. Yes. So for those of you to know, pit is a basically a police interdiction technique. It's uh, what you've seen on a lot of, uh, probably on the news. When you see a cop car, they kind of come up gently and they put that front quarter panel against the rear quarter panel, which basically is your front, let's say, driver's side tire next to the rear passenger tire of the bad guy car. And then you just kind of glide into it and it just pushes that car perpendicular on the road. It's important to note that um, even law enforcement, they're not allowed to perform these over 30 to 35 miles an hour because that's considered fatal. Um, if you So if you want to kill the bad guys, then yeah, go ahead and pit them at like 50 miles an hour because as soon as they get sideways in front of you, that car just starts rolling down the highway, which would be a, which would be a cool sight, I got to say. And it's funny because you, you see some people when they do this, like they try to just slam their car into the car next yeah. to them. Their car will actually bounce back off of that. It's got to be that nice, even, steady push to yeah. actively do it. Yeah, I know the times that I did it, neither car sustains any any damage if you do it right. It's a nice, smooth touch. You're not even, you're barely trading paint if you do it right. Um, okay, so the van is trashed and you are within a block of your drop site. Traffic slows to a stop. You have to proceed on foot. Bang, bang, bang. You hear gunshots. Uh, you've got some bad guys um, from the van. Uh, that managed to survive and they're shooting at you. Do you A, duck behind the nearest trash can for cover, or B, opt for the large cr- concrete planter, which is just a little further away to take cover? Oh, so basically looking at cover, I would go for the planter. There we go. It's important for people to know, especially these days with mass shooters, active shooters out there getting all crazy, there is a difference between concealment and cover, right? Concealment can hide you. I compare it always like you can get behind the curtains, but that's not going to stop a bullet. Uh, But it will get you out of sight. So it is a last resort. Concealment is a last resort. But if you can always, uh, you should always um, choose cover, which is things that stop bullets. You know, the granite tabletop that you can throw on its side, the concrete walls, um, planters, bollards, you know, we all go to target, right? We should get target to sponsor this, but, um, and they've got those big red balls out front. I mean, those things are to stop vehicles, right? So getting behind those, uh, as you start to look around, there are, there is cover everywhere. It's also important to note if you're in a parking lot, the engine end of the vehicle is covered, not the trunk. So like this scenario suggests, you know, bullets will fly through a garbage can, uh, but not through the planter. So make sure you're kind of thinking while you're on the run and uh, don't let yourself run too far. It's always it's always uh, going to increase survivability if you can take cover at any given moment, especially when shots are being fired. And tagging on to that, one thing I talk about when I teach my firearms courses across the country is even cover is, uh, I consider diminishing cover. Because yeah. like, depending on the round that's coming into you, one, it depends. Yeah. Stop. But you, if you sit there long enough and they're just chopping away at it, every cinder block, every brick will all of a sudden eventually deteriorate or degrade and then all of a sudden become like an engine block is pretty good. But there are other things which it'll be chipping away and pretty soon yeah. that's not going to be there anymore. So keep moving, keep going from point to point B. A dynamic target is much, difficult, much more difficult to hit than a static target is. So just don't get comfy. You're always. No. 
next place to go to. Yeah, great point. Um, increased distance increases survivability, so you should always be on the move. All right, good stuff, buddy. Okay, so um, in the midst of all this, you take some cover, and before you know it, you got a bad guy right behind you, and he says, hands up. And the enemy has a gun in your back. You can literally feel the barrel in your back, splitting your scapulas, okay? Um Upper back, lower back, upper back. <laughs> yeah, we'll put it right in the center, upper back, yeah. Um, so do you reverse kick the guy in the balls, all right? A, reverse kick in the balls, a donkey kick to the balls, or B, raise your hands up, then push your back against the gun, and then pivot quickly inward and trap the enemy's gun hand by swinging your outer arm down and over and trapping the gun hand. I would go B but I'd do a different technique than that. I would trap yeah. the arm, but I would do it a different way. Yes, there's a lot. Yeah, you're, you're right on it. That's the correct answer. There's a lot of different ways to do this technique, and it's very difficult to describe. But if your hands are up and you twist and then you let that arm down, essentially your armpit becomes the trapping mechanism on the gun hand. Um, and now you temporarily have control of the gun you've got to get positive control at the end of the day but that's your goal so um back against it too to feel where it is right yeah that's important too and if you can get a quick peek knowing whether they're left-handed or right-handed that play that determines which way you rotate into the weapon absolutely live side dead side uh which way you're turning into you're absolutely right yeah yeah um so back kicking isn't going to do you really any good uh and then Small target area. That's a hell of a... That's right. And you're kind of doing this weird Jane Fonda thing, trying to kick it so from behind so without seeing. So, yeah. I mean, we got to look cool when we fight. So that's why you trap it, and then you take the big old elbow elbow to his temple, knocking him unconscious, right? Wrists, vice form, right to the... Absolutely, yeah. That's it, yeah. Important to note, elbows, right? That's close in. You know, if you're a, a, another step back, now you can, you know, throw open open hand or open palm strikes or fists. But when you're tight like that, you've already got his, his gun hand trapped. Now you've got elbows, and elbows are ruthless. Uh, the tip of the elbow can cut, and if you just go a little further down the elbow, it can certainly crush a skull. So um, all good. All right, so with the enemy knocked out, do you A, sprint towards the drop site, or B, take the enemy's weapon and scan and make sure the area is safe. Oh, take the enemy's weapon. Yeah, of course. Grab a tool, trade, yeah. That's right. If you can grab a weapon, you should. You're not gonna hang out for very long, so I mean, you're not gonna, because the area is safe at that point, but you're definitely gonna take his weapon and then find cover concealment and make your way toward the, uh, toward the end, to the finish right. line. That's right, good points. Um, all right. So now you can head straight to the diner and get rid of this fucking briefcase for Jim, right? The things we do for our friends, right? It's crazy. Um, you'll be safe once you're inside that diner. You can see it. It's in view. Last question. Do you A, fire a warning shot in the air and then head in for delivery? <laughs> or B, move in a zigzag pattern from cover to cover before gaining entry? into the drop site. 
love to know what the purpose of finding a water <laughs> shop is. But no, I would say zigzag pattern, make your way to the uh, to the diner. Yeah, um, I'm guessing if you're gonna fire around, it's like a warning shot gets bad guys' heads down and potentially gives you that time and space to. Uh, just move on in. Um, so B is correct. You zigzag, you zigzag from cover to cover, and uh, knowing that distance increases survivability. But if you have a long stretch to run, definitely take cover along the way, and always keep your eyes on the bad guy if you have that opportunity. Right? Look, listen, and feel. Make sure he's still there. Move to the next piece of cover. Look, listen, and feel. Move to the next piece of cover. Um, all the way to the diner. Uh, you got 10 for 10, my friend. That's a 100% you survive this podcast. Outstanding. Damn, man. That was good. And uh, so you did a good job. Great input. Um, where where can people find you? I know you got a lot going on, but what's like your uh, what's the center of your ecosystem for people to learn more about Jeff Reeves? So, I mean, uh, social media handles are uh, Shadowworks, S-H-D-W Works. That's actually a textile company that we're making cool stuff. And I'm uh, part of that company. I'm on there. Well, longer uh, as a Twitter, the Instagram, all that fun stuff. Uh, my personal Instagram is official Jeff Reeves, just because I couldn't hear, I couldn't find a better title that was not used <laughs> at the time. I couldn't embed in myself. Um but that, those are the two main ones. Yeah, through, uh, through my, either my personal or the company. And the company, we've got uh, this uh, highly, res highly resistant gloves and shirts that we're selling for instances like this for people to protect themselves out in the real world against edge threats, uh, uh, resist or uh, edge threats, tear, cut, abrasion, yeah. flank, et cetera. Yeah, I want some of those guns. That's Shadow Works, right? Shadow Works Group, yeah. Dude. Great hanging out with you. I appreciate you coming here. Uh, thanks for your time and uh, great stories. Love it. Uh, and for everyone listening, remember to keep it simple. Crisis will complicate the rest and outwit, outmove, outplan, and, you know, the ultimate goal outlive whatever threats you may face. So until next time, we'll see you later. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson. <laughs>